Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to continue on from our earlier episode on benzodiazepines and look in a bit more detail about benzodiazepine use disorder, but also some of the clinical indications of benzodiazepines. So Fergal, could you um, explain in a bit bit of detail how the various half-lives of the different types of benzodiazepines can impact their clinical use or the utility they have in clinical practice? Yeah, so if we understand the hierarchy of half-lives, it's not so important to really remember you know, the actual half-lives, but really I think it's important to know that diazepam has got the longest half-life. Clonazepam has got a half-life, roughly half of that of diazepam. And then, and then we've kind of got the, the middle half-life drug, which is nitrazepam. And then really we've got, uh, you know, oxazepam, uh, lorazepam, and temazepam. And they've all got half-lives around the 10 to 15 hour mark. And then the Z drugs, they've got very short half-lives. So if you can remember that hierarchy, at the very top is diazepam. And half of diazepam is clonazepam. In the middle, we have nitrazepam, and then the, 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 the shorter drugs are, the, you know, the, the oxazepam, temazepam, lorazepams, and then the ultra shorts are the Z drugs. So how does that translate into clinical practice? So really, sleep induction requires a very short half-life. Now remember, sleep induction is not the same as sleep maintenance, so you can get to sleep. But if you're using a Z drug, yes, you can get to sleep, but you might wake up too soon. Sleep maintenance requires a, a drug that's got a short half-life, so that's why we use temazepam. Anxiety, you need a medium to long half-life, so you could use uh, clonazepam or uh, diazepam. Epilepsy and alcohol withdrawal management, you need very long half-life, so really you're, you're talking about diazepam, if preferable. However, having said that, remember, people with uh, impaired liver disease or elderly with basically impaired phase one uh, uh, liver reactions, are not able to, to, to handle diazepam uh, as well as others. So therefore, we would use uh, a drug that doesn't have phase one metabolism, and therefore we would use uh, oxazepam or lorazepam, even though they've got short half-lives. So really, that's, that's the rationale of understanding the therapeutic indication according to the half-life. That's, that's a great summary, Fergal. And I think it leads on to my next question, which is, it's sometimes the clinical indications or the utility of benzodiazepines for a while that can lead to tolerance to benzodiazepines and basically lead to decreased responsiveness of those GABA-A receptors to, to benzodiazepines over time. Could you talk uh, a bit about how that happens and, and what actually happens when, when the body develops tolerance to benzodiazepines? Yeah, so let's just think about what tolerance means. It means that you need more and more of the substance to get the same effect. And then you end up into this situation of, of diminishing returns for dose increases. And we see that very commonly with opioids, but it's also very possible with benzos. So what are the mechanisms by which that happens? And first of all, broadly speaking, I, I, I envisage three things happening. Firstly, we have the uncoupling of benzodiazepine binding to the, uh, the binding site of the GABA receptor to then uh, the actual uh, GABA binding site. Because remember, I said to you earlier that, or in a previous episode, that benzodiazepines are positive allosteric modulators. 
So by definition, there has to be a connection between the benzo binding site and the GABA binding site. And so that, that uncoupling can cause a, 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 a tolerance to benzodiazepines. The next thing that we need to understand is that in the face of a barrage of agonists, all receptors hide. And what does that mean? It means they become internalized. So that happens with every receptor that we know. We, we know any, any molecule that has an agonist receptor relationship. If you, if you flood that environment with agonists, the receptors will run for cover. So you have receptor internalization, which is another uh, mechanism by which uh, you get benzodiazepine tolerance. The third way is really interesting. So in a previous episode, we discussed the five protein domains of the GABA-A receptor. And I said to you that the benzodiazepine binding site was at the junction between the alpha-1 and the gamma-2 domain. Now, there's actually, uh, to my knowledge, six, I think five or six types of alpha domains, alpha-1, 2, 3, 4, 5 possibly six, I can't remember. But alpha-1, alpha-2, alpha-3, and alpha-5, when they interact with the gamma-2, that that means that there is a possibility of a benzodiazepine binding. If you have alpha-4 interacting with gamma-2, benzodiazepines cannot bind to that binding site. So the expression of alpha-4 subunits in the GABA-A receptor inhibits benzodiazepine binding, and that can also occur in response to high-dose benzodiazepine challenge, and that's a third mechanism by which we have benzodiazepine tolerance. And I suppose really this leads us on to the idea of this concept of the neurosteroid-sensitive benzodiazepine receptor. So, you know, the GABA receptor, sorry, correction, the the neurosteroid-sensitive GABA receptor. And so... The neurosteroid GABA receptor is sensitive to the effects of neurosteroids, but insensitive to the effects of benzodiazepines. An example of that is the one is the alpha four benzodiazepine receptor, because that binding site that exists between alpha four and G two does not allow the binding of benzos. That's great information, Fergal. I'm going to talk about two different areas now that are kind of linked to what you've just said before. Um, and there are areas where there's a bit of grayness and, and, and not much, um, I guess, clarity in terms of timeline. So I was, I'm going to put you a bit on the spot here. And I'm going to be, t- be talking about tolerance and dependence. And in terms of benzodiazepines and talking about clinical tolerance, what kind of time frame would you be thinking a patient might be developing some tolerance to benzodiazepines and what factors might impact that? So we've talked about the mechanisms by which tolerance occurs and we've explained what tolerance is. So it's it's the law of diminishing returns. So really it depends on which clinical effect you're trying to look for that that depends the time at, at which tolerance becomes an issue. So if you're using a benzodiazepine for sleep, you could get tolerance within a week. And that's quite surprising. You know, imagine, you know, think of all those patients that we have, the little old grandmothers that have been on oxazepam every night for the last 50 years. You know, they're not taking, they're not taking oxazepam to get them to sleep, right? Because you can get tolerant to the soporific effect of a benzo within a week. 
And then we have the people who are using a large amount of benzodiazepines because they've got anxiety. Well, you get tolerance to the, anxi- the anxiolytic effect of benzodiazepines within four weeks. Uh, some may say four months, but really, you know, within within by the by the end of twenty eight days, there, you know, some learned bodies in the United Kingdom have suggested that, you know, at the end of four weeks, you're no longer treating the primary condition; you're just you're just maintaining a benzodiazepine dependence. So the key message to understand is that tolerance occurs very rapidly compared to the duration of use of benzodiazepines, and which then gives us this question of why, why do we even bother continuing to treat patients with these drugs beyond a month when we know that really we're not treating the primary condition, we're just treating tolerance? What would you say to that? It's a controversial question, Fergal. Why do we treat patients with <laughs> benzodiazepines before, beyond the time frame they're recommended for and for indications that are not really clear for the use of benzodiazepines? I guess, and maybe this is a wishy-washy way of answering the question, but I think it's really important to know why you're using benzodiazepines in the first instance. And uh, one of my one of my mentors and teachers, uh, John Cook, really kind of uh, put to me, what what would I use or why would I treat a patient with benzodiazepines? And it basically came down to, to three indications for me. Alcohol withdrawal, benzodiazepine stabilization. So basically someone who's on a large dose of multiple benzodiazepines and I put them on a dose of diazepam and then I stabilize and wean them in the community. And potentially in a situation of acute distress or trauma for the patient, I would give a limited time course supply of um, something like diazepam for maybe two days or three days just to get through the acute stressor and then stop. So I guess those would be the indications for my prescribing of benzodiazepines. I'm, I'm not quite sure if you agree or disagree with those indications, Virgil, but it, and then I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a plan of stopping and ceasing the usage. It would not be an ongoing script thereafter. Uh, and I think sometimes as, as prescribers, we, we're, we're empathetic people and we can see our patients suffering and we think prescribing beyond the time frame or beyond the indication is the right and the humane thing to do. But as you've mentioned, Virgil, that can just open a can of worms. It can lead to other sequelae which can cause the patient for the worse health outcomes and adverse effects, and we are really doing our patients a harm. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with those three key indications, hypnosedative withdrawal, uh, long-term tapering, or acute distress. But remember, let's just reflect on the fact that long-term tapering and our use of benzodiazepines occurs as a result of previous inappropriate use of long-term benzodiazepines. But yeah, so really... If we're talking about a benzodiazepine-naive individual, there are only two indications for the use of benzodiazepines. That is the management of hypnosedative withdrawal and acute distress. Absolutely. Now, moving on from dependence to... uh, Sorry, moving on from tolerance to to dependence, and I think we've kind of hinted at this with with the little spiel we, we did a bit earlier. Could you talk a bit about the benzodiazepine dependence syndrome and the time course that one could expect for, for, for dependence to benzodiazepines? Yeah, so you've got to remember that any dependency syndrome is predicated on, the ab- on an abstinence. 
So you 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 basically stop or rapidly cease or rapidly reduce a substance. Then if you get a, a cluster of sim- symptoms, then that becomes the abstinence syndrome, and that is how we diagnose benzodiazepine dependence. Um, you you can look. Various authors say various different time frames. I mean, we've just said that you can start getting tolerant to the effects of benzos within a month. But then you know, other authors will say, well, actually, to get dependency, you're talking about you know four to six months, or or if you're using regular doses, or two to three months of using super therapeutic doses. I'm not entirely sure exactly at which point in the time you get dependence, but I I think sticking to that rule of no more benzos after a month, I think is always a good rubric. However, having said that, if you suddenly cease a, a patient's benzodiazepines, <clears throat> the thing is not everyone's going to go into any kind of withdrawal sy- syndrome. It's not automatic. Less than half of patients will actually go into any kind of withdrawal symptom. And it's very difficult to actually predict which type of patients will do that. Um, Nonetheless, some patients do, so we need to understand what is the benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome like. So, uh, you know, it's a combination of neuromuscular, cognitive, and psychiatric phenomena. So in terms of the neuromuscular symptoms, you end up with tremor, uh, we end up with hyperreflexia, we can end up with seizures. In terms of cognitive, we, we end up with cognitive clouding, we end up with perceptual abnormalities in terms of psychiatric uh, uh, symptoms, we can end up with paresthesia or hyperacusis or tinnitus or micropsia, you know, so changes in the way that we process visual images. And also we have to think about autonomic hyperarousal, which again is the key hallmark of any kind of hypnosedative withdrawal. So those are the clusters of symptoms. So we have, um, you know, autonomic, neuromuscular, cognitive and psychiatric. And that's really good for us to remember. And also our next episode of, of Cracking Addiction will go through benzodiazepine withdrawal and the management of benzodiazepine withdrawal in, in a lot more detail. But I guess to, to round off the episode um, of benzodiazepine use disorder in particular, and it is a DSM-5 um, disorder. And uh, in previous episodes, we've used the acronym CHEW, that COP, to, to get to, to uh, the, the 11 criteria that you will need for it. So, Fergal, uh, as part of the closing of this episode um, on benzodiazepine use disorder, could you go through Chew That Cop just to help our viewers um, with some of the criteria for benzodiazepine use disorder? Yeah, the most famous mnemonic in addiction medicine. Right. So, yeah, I just want to reiterate what you've just said. It's really important to understand that tolerance is not a substance use disorder. So tolerance and dependency can occur, but that's the, the substance use disorder means a means not only tolerance and dependence, but it also means that utter chaos in someone's life where they lose control of their drug use to the detriment of their functioning in society, to the detriment of their relationships, right? So, and that's when you start diagnosing the substance use disorder. So to that cop, the first C stands for cut down. So the inability to cut down. The second C stands for craving. So CH, H for hazards, so persistent drug use despite hazards. And then the second H, persistent drug use despite ill health consequences. E stands for escalating amounts. W stands with withdrawal. So we've just, I've just given you the symptoms of benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome. 
the first T stands for time. So spending a lot of time acquiring, using, and recovering from drugs. We've already done the two H's. The A stands for activity. So saliency. So instead of having a wide range of activities in your life, you lose all the peripheral activities and you just are salient on focusing on your drug use. So it's a loss of activities. Uh, T also for tolerance. So, you know, we've already talked about tolerance. So tolerance and withdrawal are the physiological criteria that are used to, to make a diagnosis of uh, substance use disorder. And then C, uh, so we've had the first C, which was uh, the inability to cut down, the second C, which was craving. And then to me, the last two criteria are the most important criteria in making a diagnosis of addiction. And it all relates to the chaos in people's lives. <clears throat> so O stands for obligations, the inability to meet role obligations as a result of your drug use. And then as a consequence of that, the loss of your personal and professional relationships, because no one wants to spend time with you. No one wants to rely on you because you're just unreliable because you can't do anything. So th that's true, that COP, and that's the DSM-5 uh, criteria for substance use disorder. And you need at least two criteria to make a diagnosis of substance use disorder. But the number of criteria, uh, now let me just say this, the, you, you need two criteria to make a diagnosis of substance use disorder, but you cannot use tolerance and withdrawal per se to, to, as the minimum two criteria for any prescribed medication, which includes benzodiazepines. So you're reliant on at least two of the other nine criteria to, to get you across that diagnostic threshold to make a diagnosis formally of benzodiazepine use disorder. But nonetheless, the number of criteria will then give you an idea of the severity of the use disorder. So two to three criteria is mild substance use disorder, four to five criteria is moderate substance use disorder, and six or more criteria is severe substance use disorder. That's, um, that's uh, DSM-5. ICD-11, I think is actually better because ICD-11 not only gives you a diagnosis of uh, dependence, you can also have a diagnosis of a harmful pattern of substance use or benzodiazepine use. You can have a diagnosis of an episode of harmful use, or you can have an episode of risky use. But if we look at the dependence criteria, basically it's 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 three three or four criteria that are that are that are key, and that is an internal drive and a dysregulation around drug use as characterized by two out of three of the following. So we've got saliency uh, prioritization criteria, we've got loss of control criteria, and then we've got the physiological criteria. So we've already talked about the physiological criteria, the tolerance and the withdrawal. So if we go through the control criteria, we've got an inability to control the, the onset of, um, of drug use. We've got the inability to control the offset, so unable to cut down. And then we've got uh, excessive amounts. So those are the three lack of control criteria. So if we go through to the, um, the, the saliency criteria, then we've got persistent use despite harms. We've got increasing amounts of use. We've got loss of activities and we've got prioritization. So those, that's, that's a description of the ICD-11 criteria, which are vaguely similar uh, to the substance use disorder criteria. Excellent. Uh, thanks, Fergal, for that very comprehensive um, wrap-up. And also, I think that brings us to, to the end of this episode of Cracking Addiction, where we've talked about benzodiazepine use disorder. We've talked about dependence, tolerance, some of the clinical indications for benzodiazepines, 
and gone in detail through the DSM-5 and ICD-11 criteria for benzodiazepine use disorder. So thanks for your attention on this episode of Cracking Addiction and bye for now. Thank you.